I also shared with a client something that uh, Mama used to say, <laughs> and it's farting a lantern. <laughs> she was talking about her, her nephews bouncing around, and I was like, like a fart in a lantern, and she was like, ah, I love that. <laughs> that is definitely an old-timey saying. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, don't let the turkeys get you down. Don't <laughs> let the turkeys get you down is a really good mama saying. <laughs> mama had some good ones. <laughs> We'd like to remind you that the information contained within this podcast reflects our own personal opinions and should not be held as any kind of official recommendation. That's right. This podcast is for our own purposes. It's educational mm-hmm. and, and for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Edutainment, if you will. <laughs> We're just a couple yahoos with master's degrees, and this isn't a professional capacity. So if as you're listening to an episode, you feel that maybe you need help with your own mental health, please do contact your own doctor or a therapist. And finally, we try to stay pretty clean with this podcast, but sometimes we slip up and sometimes we just talk about weird stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> it might be not safe for work. You'd probably better listen with headphones. Hello and welcome to Freudian Sips. The podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. Hello. How Hello. are you doing, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little slow on the uptake today, I think. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? It's a slow, kind of rainy day here while it we're is. filming. It's kind of hard to get up any get up and go. While we're filming, <laughs> that just sunk in. Oh, is that what While I said? we're filming. I guess I was looking for recording and my brain filled in the wrong word. But it's kind of the same, so it's okay. And that's the kind of day it's going to be. <laughs> I guess. So what's happening, Anna? What's up? What's going on for you? For me? Uh, you. You. For me? My girl. Yes, you. We just had kind of an exciting family time. My brother, your son, got married. I don't know if you know. <laughs> oh, is that what happened? <laughs> yeah. That's what that big party That's what was? That thing was? That's what we dragged you to and had you sit there and, and had to wear take that pictures. Dress. And- <laughs> No, so that's kind of what's been occupying our family space for a little Mm -hmm, while. mm -hmm. So you know what's been going on with me because you were there. (laughs) Yeah, that was that's a big deal. When there's a wedding in the family, it's a pretty big deal. It was fun. My youngest kiddo. Now both of your kiddos are married. Both of my kiddos are all married people now. Married, which makes me feel weird, kind of older, I guess. Although two nights ago, I was at a social activity and a woman came over to show me a picture of her son, whom I taught in kindergarten, who is now 26 freaking years old. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, thanks. Thank you. I needed that to make my evening complete. (laughs) No, it's I was feeling young and spicy, but now I'm not anymore. (laughs) I know. I was all dressed up and thinking, I look pretty hot tonight. And then I was reminded that my kindergartners are 26 (laughs) years old. And I went, oh, crap. It doesn't mean you didn't look hot. But the good news is that he's doing well. And she said some very nice things about, you know, how I made a difference in his life and all that. (laughs) He wouldn't be where he is now without his kindergarten teacher. You start the path, man. It's an important job. Everything important you learn in kindergarten. That's what the posters say. 
<laughs> I've seen posters that say Oh, it. yeah. They have those. Oh, yeah, sure. I They're probably kindergarten teachers. Kindergarten. Yeah. Kindergarten teachers made it up because they want to, you know. <laughs> kindergarten teacher propaganda. <laughs> so back to the wedding thing. Weddings are a very emotional time. There's mm-hmm. a lot that goes on in weddings. Yeah. Happy emotions and kind of sometimes. Intense emotions. Mm-hmm. It's often like people put a lot on their wedding day. Like I think that that's hard to kind of relax and let it be a fun day because they're, it's it's big and there's a lot of planning that's involved and but I think I think they enjoyed it. I think they were able to enjoy it. It seemed day. like they had a lot of fun. Yeah. So that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. I know that Gabe said that he just wanted everybody to have a good time. Yeah. That's so much the way that Gabe thinks. He yeah. wants to make sure everybody's okay and why well, he's a nurse. Gabe is a good person. You raised at least one good person. Hopefully I, two. I raised two good persons. <laughs> yes. Very good persons. Good I could not be more proud of my babies. You could even say that you brought us up and taught us our behaviors. <gasps> I shaped you. You shaped us. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with oh, what we're talking about today, hmm. Mom? It could. It very well could have to do with what we're talking about today. We are talking about a person today, but I was going to say we're talking about operant conditioning in itself, but we're talking about the person who kind of named operant conditioning. Yes. B.F. Skinner is the name. (laughs) The boyfriend Skinner. It's not his name. I assume people have heard that name. I don't know how far outside of psychology, maybe. Skinner's pretty. I think I think it's pretty one. Yeah, psychology one hundred and one. If you've taken a psychology class in any level of school, you've probably heard B. F. Skinner. I think this is really funny that we're talking about him. This is episode one hundred and nine, by the way. We haven't talked about the episode number. He didn't ask me last time. I know. Falling down on my. I know you're slacking. (laughs) I listened to it this past week though, and when they said the number. Because I asked my Alexa to play it. Oh, sure. And she said the latest episode, and she said the number. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you didn't know. I didn't I tell know. you at all last time. I was like, Alexa. You were in the dark. It could have been episode 345. <laughs> I think I would know if it was that high. But... I think sometimes it feels like episode 345. <laughs> So 109. 109. And the reason that's funny is because exactly 100 episodes ago, we talked about Pavlov, who did classical conditioning. Right. This is operant conditioning. So we talked about Pavlov in episode 9. His his thing was classical conditioning. It was a whole other type of learning behavior. But we're going to talk about Skinner's model, which is operant today. But I have to be honest, my brain kind of crisscrosses them sometimes. Yeah. I mean, not the two people, but the theories kind of crisscross in my brain just the whole anything behaviorism i kind of start to zone out a little bit right right (laughs) i know me too i'm not i'm not real into the whole (laughs) behaviorism thing although boy there's some black and white things that i can't you know especially as a teacher oh that's i have to say you know i definitely used some of this conditioning stuff (laughs) <laughs> and as a parent too, like you said, yeah. as a parent, you definitely use conditioning to some degree. And I guess as therapists, and we I do think too. especially cool because now I'm trying to remember what Pavlov's thing is. Pavlov's classical conditioning is that like certain stimulus gets paired with certain response, or like is paired with certain responses, right? And then you can kind of connect those stimulus to other stimulus that will also get the same response. So right. it's training people to react usually very like 
without thinking very unconsciously to very the reflex right yeah it's more yeah. like a reflex you're training a reflex of, right yeah. exactly and that is different than skinner's thing operant conditioning which is where we reward behaviors that we want to see and punish behaviors that we don't want to see and that's how behaviors get trained but we'll talk about that in a second so since we're talking about a person today, we're going to do like his bio, yeah? Yay! The Yay! structure of the history episode. Yay! Yeah, let's talk about Skinner and who the dude was. Do you want to guess what BF stands for? Oh, I read it. It, it oh, was like Buphorus or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember how to pronounce it, but it was like Buphorus <gasps> Federo. or Buphorus. <laughs> Buphorus Federo. It's <laughs> That's what I'm going to say it Buphorus is. Buphorus <laughs> Skinner. Burris? B-U-R-R-H-U-S? Burris? That's pretty close to Buphorus. It is. <laughs> the second one's Frederick, which is oh, not Frederick. Frederero? That's the Italian. That's our Italian pronunciation, yeah. So It's somewhere in my brain as Buphorus Federo. <laughs> It will remain that way because I'm just going to call him Skinner. Usually, <laughs> usually I do the first name thing, but I'm not going to say Burris or Burferis or anything. No. Call him Biff. 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 <laughs> Biff Skinner. <laughs> but no wonder he went by BF instead of that yeah, other that, weird that name. Yeah, that seems pretty yeah. rough. So Skinner was born on March 20th, 1904. He was born in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania, to hmm. Grace and William Skinner. Uh, William was a lawyer. Grace was a homemaker. And Skinner himself described his home environment as warm and stable. You love oh, to see it. that's nice. Yeah. He did have a younger brother, Edward, who was two and a half years younger than he was. But unfortunately, Edward died of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 16. Mm. Skinner became an atheist during his school years. He was brought up very religious. His parents were very religious. And his grandmother kind of put the fear of God into him a little bit early. Um, he was really scared by his grandmother's description of hell. And from what I found, he like tried to go to a Christian teacher about this to, to kind of get reassurance about that. But whatever the teacher said didn't seem to help because it was like, and that made him become an atheist. <laughs> okay. I'm so glad you bring this up because I tried to deep dive into why he became an atheist. Yeah. Okay? There was, there's a lot it, of information about like him being an atheist. Right. But it doesn't... The one thing that I read said the Christian teacher tried to assuage yes. was the word they used. And I'm like, okay, assuage means like to, to say it's okay. To reassure there's, them. Yeah. Yes. There's not really a terrible, terrible hell that everybody's going to go... I felt like that was... He was trying to... He was like... Water my, down my, the hell yeah, thing. Yeah. My grandma you know? was giving me this real fire and brim stone right. kind of hell version i don't know what the teacher said to him like yeah the very next line of my notes is i realize that story seems to be missing some key points because <laughs> i couldn't find anything about it i'm really glad to hear you say that i even that. like tried to find his autobiography to see what he uh -huh. said about it but i could only find like clipped versions of it I couldn't find anything about that particular case. I think the teacher thing was just kind of a weird note. I think the main part was how his grandma used the fire and brimstone as like a behavioral technique, basically. Oh, okay. As like a threat. Well, I wondered if maybe the death of his brother had something to do with it. Well, you maybe. know, like maybe. But I think I, he was 18 by that time. Yeah, I, was I think he say was already, he already be pretty established. Atheist. But for the bio to say, you know, he grew up in this warm, loving home uh -huh. that did involve spirituality. And then he became an atheist. This is kind of a right a, a big swing. Yeah, because it didn't you know? say much about like how his parents handled yeah. the religion stuff. Yeah, it, it was mainly like my grandma mm. was really mean about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I kind of had a grandma who was pretty big on the whole thing too, man. But he was actually really strong about, I guess, anti-religion is a way to say it, like in mm-hmm. his later years. And I think that really did have, I don't think it swayed his science. I think it definitely affected how he approached science. Mm-hmm. And and he said a lot about religion and kind of the, kind of disparaging about religion, about how it's very controlling and stuff. Um, he was pretty negative about it. But his whole thing with the behaviorism, like his whole shtick is that free will is an illusion. He was a determinist. He, he said that we don't have free will. So, I mean, free will is pretty important in like Christian theology, especially. Absolutely. So I think him kicking back against the religion stuff, it really does make sense that he would go very much into if there's no free will, then how does the universe operate? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that Again, whenever we talk about the bio stuff, it's just to like say, okay, how did they get to the theories that they got to? Right. And I think that's a huge part of it. I think him saying like, no, there's no free will. So let's just look at how people act. Mm-hmm. I think that makes total sense. One day when he was in class, he remarked to a teacher that Shakespeare didn't write As You Like It, which is a Shakespearean play, but that it was written by Sir Francis Bacon. And his teacher was like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> which... <laughs> Is a hilarious thing for a teacher to say to a kid. Uh, But Skinner was very upset about that. So upset that he went to the library to read all about Francis Bacon, which is a move I can really respect, like learning out of spite. That seems like a a very, like, I think I would do that too. So he really liked that. And he was like, I do know what I'm talking about. And then he went and read everything. But this turned out to be really impactful on his science later as well. Bacon's thing was the inductive method of scientific investigation. And that basically says that when we are studying something, we can infer general laws or like principles about how things work by the specific things that we're observing within controlled conditions. So in an experiment. So the things that we observe in experiment, we can say that applies to the the universe at large basically Mm -hmm. that's the inductive method of scientific investigation and that was what skinner ended up using wait 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 so did shakespeare really write it or was it yeah no shakespeare wrote as you like it he was wrong it it said something about like based on a comment his dad had made so i assume he like misunderstood something his dad said and then like misquoted it back to a teacher and the teacher was like you're wrong dumb kid (laughs) (laughs) why are you so stupid And then he went to the library to learn to get less dumb. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) He was also a very inventive kid. He was often making little contraptions and making little things and solving little problems. Uh, This was something he shared with his best friend, Raphael Miller, who uh, Skinner called Doc. Doc. (laughs) Doc. Because his dad was a doctor. He was not one of the seven dwarfs. <laughs> oh, that would have been way funnier. I know. But talk about nepotism. You get called doc just because your dad's a doctor. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair. Doesn't make sense. No, you don't do any of the work. Your dad does all the work and you get the name. <laughs> But they actually became friends uh, because of how religious their parents were. But they were also both really into gadgets and inventing stuff. They made a telegraph line between their houses, but the messages were too confusing, so they ended up having to call each other anyway. (laughs) It's the thought that counts. They tried. Uh, They started a business gathering elderberries and selling them door to door. So very enterprising young men. And Skinner built a device that would separate ripe from unripe berries. So when they collected all the elderberries, they realized everything would come off the branch, not just the ripe ones. So he would pour water into a little trowel into a bucket with the berries. And then the ripe berries would sink while the unripe berries floated up and like over the sides of the barrel. So 
Isn't that clever? It's very smart. So clever. So yeah, that that kind of enterprising, um, inventive stuff he was into from a very young age. So enough kid stuff. Let's talk about college. Uh, he went to Hamilton College in New York. He majored in writing. He seemed to be pretty good, too. He ended up meeting a lot of authors. One was Robert Frost, um, the poet. So the, the Road Less Traveled By, that was uh-huh. a Frost poem. That he, was one of Mama's favorite poets. Robert Your Frost, mama. really? Yeah. The Road Less Traveled By. That was one of her go-tos. Mm-hmm. But he he thought that Skinner had a lot of talent. He sent Skinner a letter that said, I ought to say, you have a touch of art. The work is clean run. You are worth twice anyone else I have seen in prose this year. Wow. It's pretty high praise from Robert Perostrand. I know, man. He wrote for the school, Skinner did, wrote for the school paper. There's uh, the atheism stuff coming back in here, too, because he was pretty outspoken about the college's traditional mores, the kind of the way they ran things. And apparently this caused a little bit of tension. So even then, he's being very outspoken about kind of what he thinks and what he believes. And if that's going to go against the very college he's at, okay, he's still going to say it. He was really... I read a little bit later, there was an article where someone like got to know Skinner kind of later in his life and did a lot of interviews with him. And he was talking about, he was just very devoted to like things being on the record and like being presented as they were. Mm-hmm. And he, he said that sometimes he would be doing these interviews and say something kind of off the cuff and be like, eh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but I did say it and it can't be stricken from the record. It has to be on there. So he wasn't even like, eh, don't, don't put that in. He was just like, no, nope, I, I said, said it, it. it's there. Yep. So he was very, very clean cut like that. After college, he lived with his parents. Uh, He tried to write a novel, and he referred to this time as his dark years, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of sad. I think so. I think most writers have that, though. Uh, He hopped around Greenwich Village, which is, I think, a little, like, kind of bohemian place in New York. The the place I read it specifically qualified. It was not yet gentrified at this point, so it Uh. was still... (laughs) Hippies were still there. Don't worry. (laughs) Uh, but he wasn't as good at writing as he was just, like, being a hippie. He he very much excelled at kind of bumming around, but he didn't actually get a lot of writing done. But he eventually figured out, and this is a quote from him, it says, I was interested in human behavior, but I had been investigating in the wrong way. <laughs> so he, he realized that writing and kind of being bohemian lifestyle was mm-hmm. him trying to learn about behavior. He was just not doing it in a very productive way. So instead, he began to read biology and psychology like our boy Pavlov and the work of John Watson, who is another behaviorist. He became a pretty dedicated Watsonian behaviorist, actually, and he wanted to um, become a scientist to engage in the experimental angle of behaviorism. So he went to Harvard. Because that's what you do when you become a scientist. Like, you go right from like... Right to Harvard. Not knowing what's going on with your life to going to Harvard. <laughs> Failing to write a novel <laughs> yeah. to Harvard. Your dark days. Talk about a glow up. Yes. Yeah. My dark days led me to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> man, you really bounce back. Yes. He has some resilience about him, man. <laughs> some people might have ended up, you know, in the gutter. And, in the gutter. He went from the know. gutter to Harvard, baby. His gutter being his parents' basement, I yeah. think. <laughs> Which some people might think so. Yeah. At Harvard, he met Fred S. Keller, a fellow pioneer of experimental psychology. Fred convinced him that the experimental study of behavior was a worthwhile thing to get into, that there wasn't really a good representation of that. Um, And this led to Skinner creating a prototype for the Skinner box, which we'll talk about in a second. But that really 
was what he used to do a lot of the behavior research that he did in those early days. Right. He also made something called a cumulative recorder, and that recorded the rate of responses as blips on a horizontally moving line. So I'm picturing like a polygraph. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you're looking at a polygraph and there's a line and it goes the blip. Mm-hmm. So so I think that is what it is. And like the higher the blip, the stronger the response. Mm-hmm. And he loved this one. He was enamored with this contraption. He hoped that it would become like sort of like the x-ray machine of psychology, that it would just be used by everyone. And eventually it kind of fell out of use. (laughs) And when it did, he wrote an article called Farewell, My Lovely, (laughs) lamenting its fate. He was so sad that it stopped being used. (laughs) Poor guy. I think that's really sweet. He stayed at Harvard to do some researching and some teaching for about eh, five years after getting his PhD. And then in 1936, uh, he was 32 at this point, he married Yvonne Eve Blue. Uh, They moved to Minnesota, where Skinner had his first teaching job at the University of Minnesota. And they had their first daughter, Julie, two years Mm -hmm. later. So Skinner was pretty busy. He had this new family. He was doing teaching. He wasn't really doing a lot of behaviorism research at this point until about six years later, 1944, when, wouldn't you know it, the Second World War hit. Mm. Of course. Well, we're, in 1944, I guess we kind of would have been into the into the world war into we're knee deep in world war at this point and he wanted to help with the war in some way he wanted to put his behaviorism skills and theories to use developing a missile guidance system by training pigeons to guide bombs do you want to know what that was called (laughs) (laughs) i give up what was it called it was just called project pigeon (laughs) oh geez he trained them i'm having a hard time visualizing this one it says he trained them to peck at a target that would guide the missile onto an enemy ship hmm. i don't know what that means i don't either what i'm picturing this is probably is right is a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of pigeons in like a control room and they have these <laughs> little like touch screens in front of them and it's like a little mini game and they have to wherever like peck the, at the wherever, right target yeah wherever the dot is that the enemy <laughs> yeah, ship is yeah, they keep yeah, what, it's like battleship. why is that better than people <laughs> I, doing it don't what, know. i don't get it well so <laughs> However, it was actually working. I don't know what the actual process was like, but however they were doing it, they were really fast. (laughs) And that was kind of the main draw. They were able to work very rapidly and they were able to keep working even when there was a lot of like chaotic sounds and like war sounds going on around them. They didn't really care about that. (laughs) They were just very focused on hitting the target. So I guess they were good at their jobs. (laughs) Those pigeons are good little bombers. <laughs> They're good little bombers. Did they actually use this technology or was this just an experiment? It I must have just been an experiment. I've never heard I, that story. I haven't heard of pigeons Pigeon being bo- used. I think it was <laughs> abandoned at some point, but I don't know why. But it, it affected his personal research because <laughs> pigeons were definitely faster than rats. <laughs> and before <laughs> he now... Switched, he switched from rats he to did. pigeons. Yeah. He did. <laughs> he said, rats, you know what? You're a little too slow for my taste. I need fast results. I need to be able to do these experiments a bunch of times. And pigeons will let me do that more. So he switched to using pigeons in his research. Jeez. Also around this time, Eve was pregnant with their second daughter, Deborah, and Eve wanted to know if her husband could design a safer crib, a, a, a crib that's safer than, you know, one of those old-timey contraptions with the rungs, 
Mm-hmm. You know, the where bars, the babies can the stick bars, their heads through, yeah. heads and legs and such. We don't because that was to... before all the rules about how far the bars should be apart and all that. And, <laughs> and babies, babies were just were, getting their yeah, heads stuck in there all their, the time. Yeah, all kinds of bad stuff. But Skinner could, and he did. I love this story. He made an enclosed, heated crib. It had a little, like, plexiglass window on it. And mm-hmm. called it the baby tender. <laughs> the baby t- it sounds like you're pressure cooking your baby. I know. And you want them to be very tender. <laughs> That's awful. It does. And it looks like a little, it just looks like a steel, like, ball with a little plexiglass window on it. Uh-huh. So... It was literally just used as a bed, like quite literally just a crib. Right. But unfortunately, there was confusion with the Skinner box because that's what he was really known for. Uh-huh. And this led to some really nasty rumors about how he treated his daughters, even rumors later in his life that his daughter had like killed herself because of how he treated her. Uh-huh. That's awful. She did not, by the way. She is alive and well. She's a successful artist in London. And he actually was described as like a warm person and a very affectionate father to his kids. So that was totally off the ball part of the creation of the baby tender was that it was higher up than a normal crib so that his wife wouldn't have to bend over so it wasn't even though it was kind of experimental it was done for all good things Mm -hmm. it wasn't like i I had read something about that there was a picture of the baby with her little face kind of pushed up against (laughs) the plexiglass you know like a baby would do sure and so they like they use that as like negative you know (laughs) like she's trapped in this (laughs) like a zoo animal With plexiglass. <laughs> I'm sure it did look like not a real friendly picture. I wonder to... if there's any, because that kind of reminds me of like an iron lung also. Yeah. So maybe there's some negative associations just, there. Yeah, probably. There, It just doesn't look very warm. No, it probably no. looks more like scientific. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Even though it was warm. Yeah, it was, I suppose you know, it was she like made heated. it to be warm, but yeah. just the fact that it's metal and plexiglass right, is right. kind of like the whole wire monkey thing. <laughs> the wire mother, yes. <laughs> So obviously it did not get used widely because people thought people had some <laughs> negative associations with it. They didn't want to tenderize their babies. They didn't want to tenderize their babies. I think it was called something. He called it the baby tender. I think it was called something else, but I don't know what. Well, like you said, the other box was a Skinner box. So maybe they called it this Skinner box. No, they, well, oh, they called it. crib. They called it baby in a box. Baby in a box. That was the article that came out that talked about it. But he called it the baby tender. Well, and that kind of also does, like, maybe if people thought that you just, like, left your kid in there a bunch. I think that was a big part of it was that people misunderstood. (laughs) You're supposed to, like, leave it in there. There's lots of pictures of it. (laughs) (laughs) Baby's like scratching at the glass trying to get out. Oh, it's a cute picture. He looks happy. Oh, he does. Oh, it looks like um, it looks like a kind of a rabbit cage size thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like when you go to Petco and the the cats are in the little thing. <laughs> it's like one of those, except it's a baby in there. Right. It does look very confining. Yeah. So I could understand that people would maybe be a little offended by that. <laughs> I wonder, like, did they like put it on the market for a while? I guess so. If they, I mean, an article came out about it talking about the new technology. So I right. don't know if it just didn't get mass marketed. Poor Skinner. He did that happened he, a couple times where he like made things and people we'll talk about that later. Misunderstood. And then it just didn't yeah. like get off the ground, even though he seems to be a really like I think he could have 
done just as well as like an engineer or something or he wasn't yeah i think the inventor part of him was very Mm -hmm. that was significant Mm -hmm. so the war at this time is kind of coming to an end he wrote a book called walden two so from what i understand it's a novel it's a book about a soldier coming back from the war to a utopian community called walden two and in walden two the reason it's like this utopian community is because the the people within the community have their behaviors that are very happy and industrious behaviors and they've been like shaped using behavioral techniques to be like happy and industrious Mm. so that is why it's a utopian society and i think that's awesome i think writing a book about how the techniques that you are pioneering made a utopian society is incredibly bold and i love i love it a lot (laughs) so that's that's very good technique it actually became one of his best-known works. There was kind really? of equal parts, yeah, praise and criticism about mm. it, but people like were very aware of mm. that, which I think is kind of cool that he eventually did do a novel. Yeah, yeah. He got out of his Frost dark years. Because said he was good, a good writer, yeah. but he had to get out of his dark years to yeah. find it, I guess. He had, to, he had to link it to his behavioral stuff, I suppose. Hmm. He and his family eventually relocated so he could be the chair of the psychology department at Indiana University, but they didn't stay long there before they hopped back to Massachusetts, uh, specifically Harvard. He joined the psych department there. He was very productive in the 50s and 60s. He was working in behavior therapy and psychopharmacology and doing a lot of research there. In 1953, when Deborah was in the fourth grade, he visited her math class on Father's Day, and he was horrified. Oh, no. He said, oh, no. All of these teachers are doing bad behavioral practices. (laughs) He said, through no fault of her own, the teacher was violating almost everything we knew about the learning process. Oh, oh no um you never went skinner to visit your classroom oh talk about Teachers, a bad supervision you yeah do yeah i went skinner to visit your classroom <laughs> so in shaping in in behavioral shaping you adapt to where it says the animals so in this case the the, the, the kid is the graders. animal the fourth grader is the animal <laughs> ask, Which, ask any fourth grade teacher they'll tell you yeah i think animals. that's not too far off <laughs> You adapt to where the animal's performance level is currently. But in the class, the kids were all moving at different speeds. They weren't getting feedback until they had done an entire page worth of math problems. So they couldn't get the like feedback they needed to adjust how they were performing. So uh, he did what he did and he developed a teaching machine. Another box to Another put a kid in. <laughs> Probably bigger, but maybe not super bigger than the baby one. I don't know if it was a box. A Skinner was, box just keeps I, getting bigger. I picture <laughs> from it's rats just city to pigeons size. to babies Walden, to kids. Walden Two is just about a city-sized Skinner box that just trains behaviors. Right. <laughs> That's his utopia. He's like, if the world worked well, the whole thing would be a Skinner box. That's right. It took him a few years to refine the teaching machine. He was active in the teaching machine movement for like 10 years, actually. He like wrote teaching machine movement. Yeah, there's apparently a movement for that. Wow. But his own machine ended up being kind of like a kid working with a tutor where the machine would give pieces of material that were very, especially at first, very specifically sequenced and then eventually would adapt to kind of where the student 
student's responses were. And like as the performance of the student improved, then there would be less and less help given from the machine. And it seemed to work really well. Like it said, the when they started in it, they were noticeably better at doing the thing after like 10 questions or 20 so questions. So whatever happened to that? Let me tell you. <laughs> because the <laughs> education field actually seemed to like it. But unfortunately, the materials for it weren't written super well. Um, um, and instead of doing machine, and I bet there was probably some financial stuff too, I, I assume it would have had to be like bringing these machines into classrooms. And mm-hmm. eventually they like made it into the form of a book instead of a machine. And that just didn't work. That didn't mm-hmm. have the same like call and response kind of thing. So it eventually just kind of petered out and like the machine isn't in use or anything. His work in the field continues to kind of lead breakthroughs in teaching kids, especially kids with autism, which I think is very cool Mm -hmm. um, just in the way that the responses are formed. But it's not like his teaching machine is in use anywhere. If you think about it, like the computer program stuff that they use now, especially with math, well, at least the way I, I understand is each it. each time, you know, when they do these, at least it's my understanding that some of the math programs that teachers use these days, or even homeschoolers or whatever, they, you know, with each problem, the kid is reinforced in that the mm-hmm. computer says, that's right, you know, right, hey, right. you did it, you know, because that reinforcement can be anything like mm-hmm. that. So then the kid with each additional, you know, step to the problem, they get reinforced. Yeah, you're doing it right. You're doing it right mm-hmm. all the way along. So it is a shaping that happens to right. those kind of programs. Yeah. And so the benefit like of that. it being, I mean, the hard part about being a teacher when you're teaching 20 to 30 you kids. Be standing you, beside every kid. Exactly. You yeah. can't be tailoring it to their one-on-one thing. So the benefit right. of the machine is like working with a tutor who can be giving you specifically answers to your things. So I, I think that is the difference. And it does sound like it would have been cool if implemented. And I do think it would be easier to implement now that every kid has a laptop right. in exactly. school. Right. So I mean, I think, and I don't know what the, I didn't see any like pictures of those machines. I'm picturing like a computer, like that yeah, you put yeah. input into, uh-huh. I think. That's probably what it was, but yeah. But he, what he, year was that? That was uh, early fifties, yeah, mid fifties. So it wasn't like there were computers that people were using, but you went knows? to a box. It was a magic box. <laughs> <laughs> you went into the Skinner box, a magic teaching box. <laughs> he must have been a very intelligent person, oh God. because his creativity, his inventiveness, was so broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Yeah, he was always trying to fix a problem. Mm. <laughs> I think that's a that's really a good cool way part to look about at it. Him. Yeah. And people around him knew that that was how he was too. That's why his wife was like, hey, this is a problem. Can you fix it? And he right. was like, yep, I can. I will build a thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, he continued to be very well known and active into the late 60s and 70s, even after retiring from Harvard in 1974. Part of his work during this time was actually addressing concerns about behavioral science from society at large. People were really concerned with kind of how it was being applied and what that would mean kind of for society. So he did a lot of work with philosophical and moral issues. Actually, uh, that article that I mentioned was about a guy who got to know Skinner because he saw Skinner speak once and wrote Skinner a note basically saying, hey, I love the thoughts on human behavior, but I think you unfairly dismiss religion as a part of psychology. Okay. And Skinner wanted to meet him. He basically said, like, I am writing this book about ethics. I think talking to you would really help me refine my own points on the thing. So in his talks with this guy, John T. Churban is the guy's name, and I will link the article somewhere so you can read it. It is a very good article. It's called Skinner's Struggle 
struggle with God. So it oh. talks about the religion and the um, atheistic stuff. Um, it's really interesting. And John's relationship with, with him lasted to the end of Skinner's life. They had like hundreds of interviews oh. together. But yeah, he was really interested toward the end of his life about the moral stuff and the ethical stuff and the religion stuff and, mm-hmm. and how that all played together with the greater psychology field at large, I think. In 1989, he was diagnosed with leukemia, but he kept as active as he could uh, with his kind of increasing weakness as his body kind of succumbed to the disease. He gave a talk at the American Psychological Association a mere 10 days before he died. Wow. And he finished the article associated with the talk on August 18th, 1990, the very day he died. Oh, my gosh. So he was working right right up up to to the the end. end. Yeah. Uh, he was survived by Eve, but she passed in 1997, and they are buried together at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hmm. It seemed like they had a good relationship. It seemed like he was a good dad. So I wonder if his relationship with that man that they were talking about, the God stuff, the spirituality stuff, I wonder if that changed any of his outlook toward the end of his life. Because sometimes people who do really struggle with spirituality at the end of their life kind of come around and I don't know if that's like a whole oh, crap, I better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that oh, does, as sure you get closer to death, you do start to second yeah. guess, no matter what, like, I think that happens when you either believe, yes, yeah, yeah. like, I think you kind of start to go, oh, what if, yeah. uh, what if all that isn't true, yeah. yeah. Like it talked about in them having a lot of the same kind of common concerns between like Christian theology and behavior analysis and what that meant for each other. And that Skinner was really open to examine spiritual possibilities, just that he was still like, I don't like religion. <laughs> yeah. He had something negative, didn't he? That yeah, I do think that the, the kind of hellfire and brimstone stuff really scarred him. Stuff, yeah. Okay. So that's Skinner's life. That's Biff Skinner. Biff. <laughs> Our boy Biff. So we step into his theory, huh? Yeah. So now that we have the baseline, wh- what he came from and what he, how he kind of approached the world, what did that mean for science? Mm-hmm. One of the things that strikes me is there are so many names that cross overlap. Over. Yeah, because like you were talking about Pavlov and mm-hmm. we've done that episode mm-hmm. and Watson. There's we have these, not done a Watson episode. We have not. And it took us a hundred episodes to get to the other so conditioning. We need to well, put Watson so in there So episode somewhere. 209, I guess, will be Watson. There you go, hundred more, because they're so close. Their theories were so well. He was he was a Watsonian behaviorist, right, so I assume right. that it was very much built on that. So even though Skinner is thought of as, I mean, you read an article that calls him the father of operant conditioning, but a lot of his work is intertwined with those names we've already mentioned and. Edward Thorndike is another really important name. Edward Thorndike in 1898 came up with what was called the law of effect. And and it's very... It's very similar to what Skinner talked about. It's very much it, you know. So according to his principle, and doesn't this sound familiar? So behavior that is followed by pleasant consequences is likely to be repeated. And behavior followed by unpleasant consequences is likely to not be repeated. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, basically. And this is what I thought was really, really cool about it. So Edward Thorndike had a box too. <laughs> but his box was called a puzzle box. Oh. And he did not put a rat or a pigeon in it. Or he, a baby? He put a cat in it. <gasps> oh, no. But it's very similar. I mean, it's like, hello. Everybody's acting like, wow, Skinner came up with this great idea. But it really, Thorndike did it in 1898. So I don't think that's what, really new. What did he have the cat do? He put a cat in a 
puzzle box is what they called it and they were like different things that the cat could play with or push on and there was a piece of fish outside the box and if you pushed a certain lever it would open the box so he could get the fish Aww. so he, he learned how and he to measured push it. the box he played wow, around, that really is the played around box. <laughs> and he hit the lever and it opened he got the fish so they put the cat back in it again and it would learn after repeated this is very operant conditioning yes. it's exactly what it is and so yeah we're, we're all about bf today okay because this is his day sure but in fairness <laughs> edward thorndyke did, did it with the a same cat. thing first <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but we've talked about that a lot in psychology, that things build on each other, build on each other, and yeah. they just take it a little bit further. So, And I think especially Skinner's Bent was the experiment part. Uh-huh. So I think probably his contribution to that was not wholesale creating the idea. It was, we're going to do this thousands of times. And we're going to show, in like when he created yeah. the cumulative thing. Yes. To show very research-based, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. data. So Skinner himself called his philosophy radical behaviorism. Like he was, when you said the thing about free will, he got a lot of negative press about all yeah. that. But he stood pretty firmly on that idea that free will was just kind like of we an don't illusion. have that it's not real yeah. yeah which i don't know about you but as a therapist that even scares me because yeah. we tell our clients all the time you know you have a choice you make these choices and so then to say mm, you don't really have much of a choice you're right. going to be conditioned to do certain well, things that is rough that's like scary. we even talked in our last episode about the existential stuff and how that yeah. like knowing you have a control over your life is a huge part of developing as a person right <laughs> and so this is like actually you're just a product of everything you've ever learned good luck right (laughs) right skinner says all human action is the direct result of conditioning all human action holy crap i I guess that means you can condition yourself yeah and that's a form of control so i guess if you're going to be a behaviorist and still want to do some existential work that's well and that's that's the bottom line of this is that that's why those of us who say we're existentialists we're not really behaviorists. that's why that's why i said at the beginning when we talk about behaviorism i glaze over a little bit because it's so at odds with what i think exactly so let's just talk about what operant conditioning is and use all those words. And even as I was doing my notes and stuff for this, I remember very clearly talking about some of these same words when we talked about Pavlov, mm-hmm. just because we referred to them, not because it was his words, right. but we talked about them. So we had to compare and contrast yeah. a little so bit. So Sipsters, if you're one of our chalice Sipsters who have heard all of our episodes. <laughs> or if you just listened to episode nine. Before you came here. Oh, yeah, it just happened to go from 9 to 100. <laughs> if you're doing a thing where you do like 1 and then 101. <laughs> it's just like skip 100 in between. <laughs> yeah, you'll be like, oh, that sounds familiar. So just the word operant, because I keep throwing that word around. Uh-huh. Operant, just so we're all on the same page, means that they're actions that are under our control. That's an operant behavior. Okay. In that it's not a reflex. Okay, and this goes back to the Pavlovian thing. That we're doing it consciously and not unconsciously? Yeah, we're doing it on purpose, so I guess it is consciously. Okay. Here, let me let me read this part. Skinner described respondent behaviors as anything that occurs automatically, like when you when you pull your hand back from a hot pan. Mm-hmm. That is not operant. Okay. okay. So yeah. so it's not a reflex, basically. But that doesn't mean you think about it. <laughs> That's confusing. Isn't it? <laughs> it's confusing, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Operant conditioning is also sometimes called instrumental conditioning. 
But again, it goes back to the idea that the consequences of a response determine the probability of repeating that thing that we're doing, whatever sure. that is. Okay, so that's that's the heart of it all. I'm making it more confusing than it should be. No, I think it needs to be this confusing. I think it will make more sense when we talk about the examples, though. Okay. So let's go back to the Skinner box for just a minute because Anna brought that up, that that one of his creations and really the heart of a lot of his investigation, they called the Skinner box. And it first started with rats and it was very similar to what Thorndike did with the cat in the box, except basically he designed this box that he would put a rat in and just let the rat kind of hang out in there. <laughs> and in the it's box- It's just a cool, fun, chill time yeah. for the rat. There was a little beanbag chair. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little TV playing mouse football. <laughs> yeah, just going to hang out. A little and, mouse Xbox in there. And somewhere in there, there was a little lever. And if they... If on the, the mouse Xbox. If, <laughs> yeah. If the rat pressed the lever, then food would be released. The idea was that the rat just kind of hung out in there and, and did whatever it wanted to do. And it would happen upon the lever. It wasn't like yeah, anybody... Yeah, it wasn't like there was a big sign that, that pointed said, push to it this, that said, push this hey, for rat, food. Push hey, this. rat. Yeah. So by kind of basically accident, the rat would push the lever and get the food and then be like, oh, what made that happen? Okay, well, maybe I'll do that again. Worth a try. Right. Chunk. And so that's where the whole rat in the box was happening. <laughs> the the pigeons were a little different. They were in a Skinner box too. But one of the he things, just had to adjust it for. And them. this this kind of reminded me of Pavlov because one of the things I read was that Skinner kept the pigeons and the rats too. I assume, but I was reading about pigeons at the time. He would underfeed them basically. They were at three fourths their weight oh. that they should have been at. So they were kind like of starving. Purpose? Yeah, so that they would want the food oh. more. Oh. Oh, isn't that also, kind of mean to animals? It's, it seems mean to animals, yes. But it also seems like why, why would that seems like a variable? Wouldn't you want them just at like baseline hunger? Mm. That seems like it would sway. That results. would increase. That would increase the like it increases why, their motivation for right, it. Yes. right, right, right. That's a good point. So the the pigeons, I don't know how they did the bombing thing, but like, I don't either. <laughs> One of the ones that I watched on YouTube um, was these poor little pigeons in this box. And there was a word that said pack and then a word that said turn. And it would know which one to do because of continually reinforcing it. Okay. Okay, so for a second, let's let's stop. Let's stop. Just stop. And talk about what they call the ABCs of behaviorism. Oh, yes. The ABCs. Because Skinner's theory says that a person is first exposed to a stimulus, which then ex- elicits a response, and then the response is reinforced. So there's three steps. Where back in the Pavlov thing, it, there was two steps. Yeah. Basically, the there was just like thing the, response, right? Thing right. response. Uh huh. So this ultimately conditions our behaviors. It shapes us, mm-hmm. which actually shaping is a little more complicated. But this is the first part of it. So the ABCs are the A is the antecedent, which is the stimulus. Mm-hmm. The B is the behavior, so it's our response or the animal's response. And then C is the consequence, which is the reinforcement. Right. So the ABCs of behaviorism. We use that word reinforcement a lot. And we did, I remember talking about this in one of our other episodes. I don't know if it was the Pavlov or another one. That I still sometimes, I have to talk myself through it. Yeah. There's positive and negative reinforcement. Which, yes. Which all positive and negative means is like... If you're adding something or taking away something from the environment. Right. A positive whatever is putting something into the environment. Right. 
and a negative is taking away. So like, so let's say, let's give a, an example, like a student. Uh-huh. So if a student is behaving well, positive reinforcement is to give them candy. Yeah, Or give to give them, them bonus points or whatever. A negative reinforcement would be to take away something that they didn't like. Right. So so the everybody behaved really well today, so we're going to take away that we have to do 10 math problems. No homework today because right. you no all homework. did so great. There you okay. go. Again, we talked about this before, but there's positive and negative reinforcement. There's also positive and negative punishment, which sounds weird. Right. Because it's like positive that punishment. That one takes a little... <laughs> oh, That's some kinky, people into baby. that, yeah. <laughs> Put on your high heels, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Positive. It's exactly what Anna just described. Positive punishment is adding something. So that's getting whooped if you do something bad. Right. And negative is taking something away. So get your iPad taken away if you don't do something right. Right. So positive and negative reinforcement and positive and negative punishment. Right. And those are the the consequences that are going to affect whether or not we want to continue our behavior. Mm -hmm. Those things. So... Sipsters, you can think about that in your everyday life. It's really plain, especially if you're a parent. I think you can think of some examples right away. I do this to myself all the time. I give myself little treats if I do things well. Do you really? (laughs) You say, (laughs) if I do this adult task that I don't want to do, I will buy myself a little treat. (laughs) I guess a lot of us do that, you know. Like, listen, yeah. if I'm going to do this stupid thing, I'm going to at least get something out of it. <laughs> and it works, right? It makes <laughs> you do, do it. the stupid little things, so okay. I guess. <laughs> okay. So with the ABCs, so the consequence, the consequence is either the reinforcement or the punishment, okay? But one of Skinner's big things was to talk about how it, it affects you differently if the reinforcement is given in a certain schedule or given in a oh, certain amount. So, sure. so he talked about fixed ratio schedules, which means like you get reinforced after a certain number of responses. These are all basically, these four are basically what we call intermittent reinforcement. Okay. Because there's continuous or continual reinforcement, which means every single time you do it, you get reinforced. So every time the rat pushes the lever, he gets a treat. Like every single time, right. But intermittent means it doesn't happen every time. And actually what what the research showed was that the intermittent one is the one that actually works better. Right. And if you get into the brain stuff, it's that having to wait, uh, having to be not sure when it's going to happen actually releases more dopamine. Hmm. And it's kind of like that thing that we talk about a lot. Like if you get reinforced every single time, pretty soon it starts getting old. Right. It's like, yeah, I've done this before. And the dopamine decreases because it's not as exciting anymore mm-hmm. or it's not as reinforcing right so that's there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in that we talk about the idea of intermittent reinforcement being addictive in some way and actually, especially when it comes to relationships and all right, that kind of stuff right and skinner i was watching one interview with skinner where he was talking about how the pigeons doing the uh, trying to get the seed and having intermittent reinforcement is the same as people on slot machines. Oh, yeah. And I know right now in our community, there are those slot machines. Popping those, up all over, man. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. 
And and it showed in this video while he's talking, it showed like the pigeons pecking for the seeds. And then pigeons the next, playing slot machines. And then, <laughs> and then there's people like in the slot machines doing the same thing. And then the pigeons are pecking in the slot machines. But if that, that intermittent reinforcement is more addictive than if you would win all the time mm-hmm. or if you would never win. Right. Which would be, you know, you wouldn't be getting any reinforcement, which would cause another word from Skinner, extinction, which means when you don't get any reinforcement for it at all, eventually the behavior ends. Eventually you stop doing it. Right. Because why like, would you keep doing it? I'm not getting anything out of this, yeah. so I'm going to stop. And the fancy word for the research part of that is extinction, that you stop the behavior because mm. you're not being reinforced. So the different kinds of intermittent reinforcement is fixed ratio schedule. So after so many times, you get a reinforcement. Like, so after 10 times or whatever. So that's not as, it feels intermittent, but you know after 10 times you're going to get right. it. But variable ratio is the really intermittent one where you don't where know. You don't, it, it could be after seven, it could be after 10, okay. it could be after three. And then the other side of that is interval schedules. So after a certain amount of time, you get a reinforcement or after a variable amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that's the intermittent one. So Going back to the extinction thing, I think that's why we talk about like non-attending to bad behavior as mm-hmm. a way to like, because, you know, for some kids especially, like I think when I think of behaviorism, I think especially of like training kids school. to do stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. school and parenting and stuff. So I think when kids are doing something, even if you're doing like a punishment thing where you're taking the iPad or, you know, giving them a talking to, giving them a timeout, whatever. Mm-hmm. If what they are gaining from it, if the reinforcement that they're gaining from it is actually the attention, you're still giving them reinforcement. Right. Even if it's, you know, not a positive thing in like the way you're giving it to them. If that's right. still what their brain is feeding off of in terms of reinforcement, you're still reinforcing the behavior. Right. So I think sometimes it does benefit to just like not reply to it. Because mm-hmm. then you're not getting any of the reinforcement, even if you think it's actually punishment. That's a really good point. So at the beginning of the episode, we talked about shaping behavior. Yeah. And how I shaped you and your <laughs> sibling into certain kind of people. Yes. <laughs> the use of the word shaping refers, and it's hard for me to describe, but it's not just like a simple event. It's not like the the pigeon getting seed by pecking it's it's more it's more complex than that and it's kind of like behaviors that build upon behaviors that build upon behaviors Mm -hmm. so it is more like raising a kid when they're little you you teach them certain things and you use reinforcement and or punishment it's a much longer term right and then but then that kind of generalizes to the next bigger thing that that you want them to learn and you're trying to shape them and and behavior and so that that idea of shaping it's very much kind of like evolution you know the it builds on itself right yeah exactly well and that's kind of why it's hard to untangle like when it does come to okay there's no free will because everything you're doing is trained basically Mm -hmm. it's like yeah it's it's trained but all those behaviors are all wrapped up on each other. So they're all reinforced all together or at the same time or not at the same time. It's kind of, it's hard to know where that stuff ends and begins. Mm-hmm. Well, and the whole, Skinner's whole thing about how everything was conditioned, basically. All of our reactions, all mm-hmm. of our responses, all of our behavior was built through conditioning. And, and that goes right up against the face of the whole, really, of all existentialism 
And also, you know, I mean, Freud would be frowning big time on all this because, you know, he'd be saying that we have these subconscious urges and blah, 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 and talk about, you know, our subconscious versus our conscience and all that. Skinner would say, no, no, we're just, <laughs> it has nothing to do with any of that crap. It's just that we were conditioned, you know, we're, we're trained, basically. Sometimes so he's no nature. He's all nurture. He's mm-hmm. that blank slate thing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes like, When I think about that, because one of the things I go back to a lot with my clients and with myself in my own life is the idea of programming. I use that word all the time. Mm -hmm. That's my programming or that's your programming. In a way, that's opera conditioning. Yeah. Because I was programmed. That means I got to this point of believing what I believe because... I acted upon things that were reinforced, right, right, right. Or I turned away from something that was punished Mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, got to where I am now with my programming. Right. But again, to remember that there's positive and negative reinforcement, but reinforcement is going to increase the likelihood of you doing that behavior. Yes. There's positive and negative punishment, but punishment is going to decrease the behavior because it's... Whether it's positive or negative, what matters in how we're training the behavior is the reinforcement or punishment word. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that one I always have to, like you said, kind of like talk through... I have to think of a real (laughs) example, yeah, to think about what what it really means. But so from what I read, I don't know how you felt about that, but I kind of felt like Skinner got a bad reputation. Yeah, Um, and I don't know if it was because of his whole atheism thing. You know, he came out, kind of spoke out against the religion or whatever. Or he was pretty vocal about it. Yeah, or if maybe he looked at things in such a black and white way that people didn't like that. Or maybe it was because he came up against the traditional idea of, you know, psychotherapy the way Mm -hmm. we had been doing it. I also think he was just really smart and that kind of came off as like kind of cold shouldery. I read a little bit about how his dad was like that. Like his dad was kind of a hard person to get along with. Not because like he was a good guy. He was described as like a nice, a nice dude, but he was just a little like he didn't get along well with people. I don't Mm -hmm. know if he was just kind of very black and white like Skinner ended up being. But Skinner kind of ran into the same thing. Like I saw something about when he was at school that he his like intellectualism it said got in the way. And there wasn't Mm -hmm. a lot of information about that. But I assume it was because he was just so smart. I think really, really smart people have problems socially sometimes. (laughs) I think it's just kind of hard to to get your brain to a place where like that matters as much when he's thinking about inventing and and like Mm -hmm. all the like how human behavior works i think his brain was on a higher level and it just made it hard to connect with people a little yeah he probably wasn't like a warm and fuzzy kind of guy he's pretty he's described as very like caring actually like really yeah in the article about the religion it was talking about how he was just like he was a nice dude Mm -hmm. a couple of the interviews that i watched he just seemed kind of cold but maybe that mm-hmm. was, and maybe he changed with age too, because maybe when I, the interviews that I saw, he was like middle-aged. Mm-hmm. And so then maybe as he got older, he got softer. Maybe. Maybe. Hey, can I circle back? I want to circle back to intermittent reinforcement for a minute. Yeah. Because you brought it up that that happens in relationships and abusive relationships. And I wanted to kind of circle back to that idea. Because a lot of terms are thrown around these days about, I just saw another one today about trauma bonding is one of the terms that they're throwing around now. That's, that's a new like, one. Yeah. And, and they act like it's a new idea, but it's not a new idea. It's basically just abuse cycle is what trauma bonding is. Yeah. It's, I mean, it can also happen in like kids who live in like a chaotic environment can like trauma bond with their siblings and stuff 
And like if you go through a trauma with someone, you kind of trauma bond with them in that way. Oh, the way but, that I've but seen yes, it used abusers is, can yeah. trauma bond with their yeah. people. They That's are the way I was. The article I was reading, and and often it gets thrown in there that you know the the cycle of living with a, a narcissist and all that. And I just what I wanted to drop in there was that it is very true. It's been proven through research that intermittent reinforcement is addictive, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens in an abuse cycle, um, whatever you call it. Right. That if you're in a relationship where your partner gives you a lot of positive reinforcement, and then all of a sudden it's gone, and then it comes back, and then it's gone and comes back, that's intermittent reinforcement. Your, your brain gets so hooked on the times when it is there right. that it's willing to put up with worse and worse times right. to get that hit. And so that's one of the things, you know, when people say, I don't understand why you stay in that relationship. I right. don't understand why people stay yeah, it's in not an recognizing abusive, what right. the cycle is actually doing. Exactly. And I, maybe I'm speaking to someone who is in a relationship that you know, oh, this isn't a healthy relationship, but I just can't seem to let it go. It might be because of something like this. Yes, yeah, you're being trained to stay, unfortunately. Right. Exactly. But that's where the choice part comes in, where like, even I think if you do really buy into this, like you're listening, you're like, yeah, that sounds exactly like what happens, that mm -hmm. I don't think there is choice. I don't think there is free will. You can still reinforce your own behaviors. You can still shape your own behaviors into what you want it to be. Right. So you still have a measure of control. Right. And even if you just take a moment to reach out to someone, and I would like it to be a therapist, but <laughs> a best friend, but Anyone. a therapist would be objective about it. You know, sometimes when your best friend says to you, you know, you should really get out of this relationship. It's not healthy for you. Yeah. You know, it's it doesn't come off as well. If someone objective works with you on how to have a free will in a relationship, that might be important to do that. Mm -hmm. I just kind of felt like I should say. I, I think it's because important. I was just working with one of my clients who's just really going through a real heartbreak right now because the person they were in a relationship with was very intermittent reinforcement mm -hmm. with him. You know, she would be all lovey, 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 and then all of a sudden she was ghosting him, and then oh. she'd be lovey again, and then she'd ghost him again. And right. he really got sucked into that and, and is really heartbroken now. Mm -hmm. So... But sometimes you got to, I mean, you got to go into it knowing, okay, there's going to be pain. But if you're in that abuse cycle, there's pain anyway. Right. That's part of what keeps you in it, unfortunately. Exactly. So it's it's worth it to go through the, the hit of pain, choosing to leave it instead of just a hit of pain to get to the next positive reinforcement. Right. So operant conditioning, it has effects on our life. We use it on our children. <laughs> Intentionally or unintentionally. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> it is a real thing. Like, I mean, I think even even if I don't call myself a behaviorist in any sense of the word, like, yeah, like reinforcement and punishment is a real thing. That Absolutely. Those are definitely ways that we get behavior trained in us. It just doesn't have to be all of it. Right. Exactly. All right. That's all we got for operant conditioning, huh? That's it. Okay. Buforus. Bu Buforus Fredro. <laughs> Frederick Rowe. Frederick Rowe. <laughs> Biff Skinner. Biff. <laughs> so thank you for your contributions. Biff. Thanks, Skinner. I don't agree with everything you said, but you seem like you were a pretty cool dude. And I don't really like that you didn't feed your birds enough. But hey. <laughs> well, yeah, that wasn't great. But we learned a lot from you, dude. <laughs> If some birds had to be a little bit peckish, 
to do it. All right. So can I give our listeners a bit of reinforcement? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's some positive reinforcement for you, Sipsters. We really appreciate you. Yay. We like you. Good you're, job. A good, you're a good person for listening. <laughs> Yay. You did something really good today. That's a positive reinforcement. That's good. For today. You fed your brain today. <laughs> yes. Don't know did. how nourishing this was for your brain. You might be like those birds, three quarters of the way full. <laughs> But thank you for listening, Sipsters. It's always good to have you with us. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, you can find more of us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are Freudian Sips Pod on everything. Our site is FreudianSipsPod.com. You can find our episodes there. You can find uh, the references um, from this episode there as well. If you want to get all of us directly, you can email us, FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com with um, reviews or topic ideas or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but please remember to leave us a nice rating and review wherever you are listening if you can do that we love those those are positive reinforcement for us absolutely our theme music is sweeter vermouth by kevin mcleod and it sounds like this one day when he was in class he remarked to a teacher that Bless you. Excuse me. Bless you. I tried to hold it. I know. I was holding it. Okay, excuse me. Sorry, Skinner. Didn't mean to sneeze on your parade, <laughs> you big old atheist. <laughs> I sneezed at you. He was an atheist. You say, Achoo! and I say, sorry. I said that so Anna would say, God bless you <laughs> in the middle of Skinner's atheism. <laughs> 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 okay sorry 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 back to business right, back right. to business <laughs>